Hey, welcome to the Week in Bite presented by The Wall Street Breakfast. I'm Daniel Snyder, and thanks for tuning in this week. So earnings are strong, or are they? The market year-to-date returns are currently negative 11.8% on the S&P 500, down 8% on the Dow, down 16.2% for the Russell, and down a 20% on the NASDAQ. And we found out this week that the U.S. first quarter economy has shrunk at a 1.4% annual rate, which is why this show is hopefully going to give you some insight as to where we go from here. So let's go ahead and bring in our first guest joining us today, the true audience favorite, Eric Bazmachin from EPB Macro Research, a service found here on Seeking Alpha Marketplace. Eric, it's always great to have you join us. Now, you've been on a few times reiterating to our audience that the economic growth rate has slowed down pretty dramatically. It feels like we've been talking about this for months, right? So let's start there. Is that still what you are seeing? And is this slowdown in growth leading you to believe that a recession is coming in the future? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, so I was on over the last couple of months outlining the case for growth to slow much more than consensus was expecting. And the reason for that was primarily because of a significant deterioration in real income. And I brought a chart of that, which shows the growth rate of real income falling extremely significantly since the spring of last year. So since uh, March or April of 2021, real income was growing at about a 5% annualized rate. That slowed pretty dramatically, cut right through what the historical or longer run trend has been to about 1.1%. Now, we're going to get this number updated uh, on Friday, so maybe by the time people are watching, the, the March number will be updated. The projection is that this real income number is going to slow pretty close to 0%, Daniel. And historically, when real income uh, is negative, it's very difficult for the economy to expand at all. And the reason for that is because the economy runs on unit volumes. And this cycle has been very difficult for investors uh, and analysts because of how high the inflation rate is and the gap between nominal growth and real growth. So a lot of investors are used to measuring uh, growth nominal or real and sort of looking at it interchangeably because inflation was always kind of one and a half, two percent. And there was really no material difference between real growth and nominal growth. That's changed with this uh, surge in inflation. And what we have to remember about real growth is real is unit volumes, right? So price times quantity. Real is quantity. And if the quantity of items are going down, I also brought a chart of real consumption. If the quantity of uh, goods or, or services that consumers are purchasing is falling, that would be a negative real growth rate. That poses a significant problem for the economy because if you have less units or less volume of consumption, that requires less production. Less production requires less employment. Uh, now, turning back to the GDP number that we got this morning, it was a negative print, which caused a lot of people to, to flash recession headlines. But uh, even though I've been in the growth slowing camp, the number that was reported was heavily skewed by two categories, inventory and the trade balance. So the number was probably weaker uh, or, or, or the report was weaker than the, than the actual GDP number, um, the, the underlying GDP number. So we, we still have growth slowing. 
Growth is, is going to continue slowing over the next couple of months, but we're not quite yet at recession's door, despite the negative GDP print, because the contraction was from inventory and trade balance. Eric, let me ask you, though, I think a lot of people have the same question as well, is what do we have to see happen in order for that recession lever to be pulled? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Something that I track extremely closely inside of, uh, inside of the service. Uh, essentially, what we have here is we have four main components of the economy. And I track these are called coincident indicators. I just showed two of them. One is real income. We have real consumption. We have employment and we have production. Right now, none of those four indicators are in negative territory. The, the chart prior showed real income was about 0.3% on the March projection. We're about 1.6% on real consumption. Employment growth is still about 5% annualized growth rate and production is about a 5% annualized growth rate. So what we would need to see to start signaling a, a recession alarm or to suggest that a recession is an imminent risk is we need to have at least one of these four corners of the economy showing contractionary uh, growth rates. And, and more than likely, the first leg of the stool that's going to fall is going to be real income. So the March projection is going to push real income to about 0.3% right there. And then the April number, more than likely, if this inflation stays elevated for just another month, is going to push real income into negative territory. Once real income or any of the four coincident indicators uh, fall into negative territory, then what you have to watch for is what we would call a vicious economic cycle, meaning that negative real income uh, pulls down real consumption, real consumption pulls down production, lower production pulls down employment. So over the next couple of months, if we have a negative sustained reading on real personal income, that would be an extremely um, loud signal that recession risk is, is much more uh, pronounced than, than consensus believes. Yeah, that's a great point. I also want to bring this in. I was reading uh, some of the authors across Seeking Alpha um, just the other day when, when putting this together, thinking about recession. And I came across this article that we got from CBO, uh, CBOE Global Markets, um, who also shares their data with us. And I just want to bring it to the attention of uh, our audiences. You know, consumer spending right here makes up about two thirds of the US economy, government spending on things like defense, social security and healthcare make up the other one third. And here is the, the they're referencing the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, right? And they're, they're pointing out that it's at the lowest levels that we've seen time and time again throughout recessions. Um, I would love to hear your take. Is this just noise when we see this or does this go into a, hey, everybody continue to watch this, you know, recessions are looking very favorably right around the corner. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's definitely not noise. The University of Michigan uh, survey is a very long history. It's a fairly reliable indicator. Uh, it, it definitely is, is a component of a broader basket of indicators that, that tracks economic conditions. And I think what, what's really being reflected here in, in the negative consumer sentiment is a decline in real income. Uh, that's that's the you know the the main chart that I brought is is that when consumers have negative real income growth and they feel like they're falling behind, sentiment starts to to, to move uh, move to the downside. You know there 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 are a lot of 
problems with economic analysis now, which I mentioned in, in, in the start of this, in that inflation numbers are very high, so it's clouding some of the real serious decline in, in, in real metrics that we're tracking. But if you just think about it, Daniel, if you got a 10% raise on your job, but your rent payment went up 25%, you're, for, you're falling behind, you're not moving forward. So a lot of people are citing, hey, we have really strong wage gains. Wage gains are six or 7%. But if inflation's eight or nine percent, consumers are falling behind. That's going to make people feel worse. And, and the reason that this is going to exacerbate the slowdown is because when consumers fall behind and their sentiment starts to become uh, more downbeat, the first thing that the consumers are going to pull back on are the large discretionary goods, namely uh, goods that are, are related to housing and, and durable goods. So uh, you think big ticket items, appliances, things that go into a house really you know, discretionary type goods. The problem though, is that those discretionary goods, those big ticket durable goods are the cyclical engine of the economy. The service sector is extremely unvolatile and in, in and the service sector, uh, a lot of the time, uh, excluding the 2008 recession, hardly ever contracts in a recession. It's really the cyclical durable goods and housing component of the economy that really is what gets the cyclical engine either cycling upwards or downwards. And the last chart that I brought was, was the rate of change in interest rates, which is going to facilitate a really sharp decline in my view in these cyclical durable goods and the housing at a time when economic growth has already slowed into the 1% range. That's, a, that's a, a recessionary concern here that whenever you have a big spike in interest rates, which is inverted in this chart, so when the line is declining, that means you're having a spike in interest rates. Uh, over the preceding 12 months, uh, declining economic growth is extremely likely. And the problem that we have here and what brings recession fears into the, into the window is that we're going to have a decline in growth based on this spike in interest rates at a time when the growth rate's already pretty low, about 1%. So I'm not ready to sound the recession alarm yet. There are a few criteria that, that have to be triggered, but the, the outlook for recession is certainly increasing probability as we move to the middle and end of the year. Yeah, I have one last question for you before we let you go is how or what needs to happen? What do investors need to see happen from here for this to turn around? So that we're like, okay, you know, recession fears are unwarranted. What is that scenario that that'll save us from this? Yeah, generally, you, you need something to break that downward cycle because once the 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 economy starts to cycle downwards, it's very difficult to break that cycle. And historically, what breaks that cycle is the Federal Reserve coming and easing monetary policy. Because if you go back to that interest rate chart, if the Federal Reserve stepped in and, and started to ease monetary policy extremely aggressively, that would cause interest rates to go down, which would be this line in the chart going up. That would, that would kickstart the economy in the opposite direction, right? It would, it would uh, pull forward demand for housing and durable goods, which gets the economy rolling in the positive direction. The, uh, the problem here is that the Federal Reserve is set on, on continuing to push this line lower, meaning interest rates higher. So we're, we're going to assuredly have a downturn in housing and durable goods. And it doesn't look like the Federal Reserve is ready to come and, and have anybody's back here in terms of jumpstarting the cycle in the other direction. So um, when I look at the leading indicators of, of economic activity, there are very, very few, if any, signs 
that the direction of economic growth is going to accelerate in the next couple of quarters. So while a recession is not a foregone conclusion, the direction of economic growth is almost assuredly going to continue declining going forward, which means that investors, something I've been saying on this show for, for several months, should, should remain highly defensive, which would, you know, I've been saying on the show was be utilities, consumer staples, low volatility, uh, and it's probably a good time to start picking up some bonds, even though that's been that's been tougher part of the trade. You know, utilities a sector that that's positive on the year, despite some of the carnage that we've seen in the market with some of the more risky pockets. Yeah. All right, Eric, let's go ahead and leave it there. You are a rock star as usual. I know our audience loves hearing from you and your macro view. Uh, you have a great weekend. Okay. Thanks, Daniel. Bye, everyone. We'll be right back right after this short break. Even when the market is volatile, some experts have the right moves. Like Jay Mintzmeyer, Seeking Alpha's shipping and supply chain expert, SeekingAlpha.com. There's always a bull market somewhere. Welcome back to the Weekend Bite. Up next, we have Richard Hunter, head of markets at Interactor, Interactive Investor, joining us. Richard, welcome to the program. Let's go ahead and start with the main focus here, being in the height of earnings. What's your take on how this earnings season has been unfolding? Well, we've just been hearing about the fragility uh, of the U.S. economy at the moment. And one thing that has become clear, despite the fact that markets had been weaker, even leading up to the more recent conflict between Russia and Ukraine, one thing that has become clear is that any earnings misses are being severely punished. Um, and in that respect, and, and one of your latter questions to the previous guest, Eric, was about what may um, have some sort of impact in reversing this fragility of sentiment. I think it's probably corporate earnings, because if we can see that uh, matters on the ground perhaps aren't so parlous, and equally importantly, if these companies can give us something of a more positive outlook, uh, then perhaps we've got this situation where there are companies there, even some of the growth companies which have taken something of a pounding this year, uh, there's still further scope for growth. Yeah, that's a really good point. But I, so it kind of feels like everybody was saying that this earnings season, we would see that sharp turnaround. And obviously this week, we haven't seen that, right? We've seen companies like Microsoft continue to beat, but we've all, and Qualcomm and other chip makers and everything else, but we've also seen companies like Boeing right, which is a huge part of the U.S. economy, take a really big hit. So is this that catalyst or are we waiting for the war to end now? What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think the jury is still out in terms of the company uh, earnings season so far. It's fair to say that probably three quarters of companies have exceeded expectations, although by the same token, of course, expectations are normally lowered uh, running into the reporting season. But we had a fairly tepid showing from the likes of the banks. Uh, ironically, despite what you said about Boeing, we've had a pretty good performance from the airlines in general on the basis of uh, some demand returning in terms of travel, particularly over the summer period. But then we get a bit more stock specific. You're absolutely right. The market has been hungry for some good news. We've, we've had that from the likes of Microsoft. On the other hand, of course, we, we had that in terms of the share price, something of a disaster with Netflix. Um, it remains to be seen whether that is um, a problem that will be besetting the industry as a whole uh, until we get proper updates from the likes of Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, etc. We won't know that for sure. Or whether it's a Netflix 
specific problem because it certainly didn't help matters in raising its prices at a time when consumer wallets, and obviously that's a, that's a vital part of the US economy, as we've been hearing, uh, are under increasing pressure. Yeah, and like as we were just talking about with Eric, consumption has been slowing. So is this the last good quarter that we're going to see from these companies? Unfortunately, it could be. And, and that's one of the reasons that uh, this quarter in particular, uh, investors have been paying attention, not just to the numbers which are being reported, but crucially, the outlook which the companies are given. Now, whether um, some of the technology, the larger technology companies do have or can be described as defensive stocks is of course open to debate. But the fact of the matter is that generally speaking, um, much as concerns around inflation have become entrenched in the investor psyche, so has technology become entrenched in our day-to-day -day lives. And some of the big technology behemoths um, have built, uh, as Warren Buffett would say, this economic moat around them. Um, they have scale, um, they have reached geographically and by business line. They're moving into other areas where they can uh, equally make a, an impact. The likes of Amazon, for example, springs to mind there. So um, there's an element of the fact that you bet against technology stocks at your peril, but because the current concerns are understandable, obviously there's a threat of increasing regulation from various jurisdictions around the world. Um, there's also still a question mark over whether some of the pandemic momentum which benefited some of these stocks has started to evaporate. I've got to ask you though, do you agree with what Eric said? Eric said people should be looking for defensive sectors at this point in time. Is that, are you part of that camp as well? Yeah, I, 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 there's two ways of doing this. You can either take the bottom up approach, which is to look at specific stocks, which is generally speaking in good times or bad, not a bad place to start. And then you can say the kind of, kind of bottom-up stocks which are currently coming into vogue tend to be found within the sectors that Eric was mentioning. And in particular, um, there are another small group of stocks which have been slightly overlooked but are now coming into their own. And these are stocks with pricing power and the ability to uh, pass on the increasing prices that we've seen as a result of inflation uh, to the consumer without um, necessarily upsetting the balance there. So companies with this pricing power uh, and strong, stable cash generation, um, which in itself, of course, uh, is an element of uh, defensiveness, but they're also providing potentially something of a hedge against inflation. I wanted to get your take on this, Richard, because I don't know if people know this, but you're joining us from across the pond, right? And there's also eyes on the European Central Bank and where they're going with rates and the fear of recession in Europe as well because of the war. Um, do you think that if Europe dives into a recession, is there going to be a contagion effect of that? Is that going to affect markets worldwide? It's certainly not going to help. The European bloc as a whole in aggregate is, of course, a major contributor uh, to, the, to the world economy. Um, the ECB's uh, stance so far has been fairly dovish. That's notwithstanding the inflationary pressures that we've seen. Um, the Russian-Ukraine conflict has certainly um, added another dimension of difficulty, not least of which because geographically, of course, being neighbours of Russia, most of Europe um, has a larger or, or lesser exposure uh, to uh, oil supplies and gas supplies, which is com currently coming to the fore as some of the uh, developed nations try to work out very quickly what the alternative may be to taking 
energy effectively from Russia. Um, and one can see, of course, that quite apart from that, that that is in itself an inflationary pressure, um, it could also stymie growth in the European region. So it's it's very fair to say it's a, it's a perfectly legitimate question that you've asked, because if the Eurozone were itself uh, to see growth evaporate and we get into either a stagflationary or indeed a recessionary environment, that is not going to be useful for global sentiment on the whole. Yeah. All right. One more, one last question before we let you go. Um, in regards to Russia and Ukraine, right? We're we're seeing the headlines about uh, additional countries now wanting to join NATO, and it seems like this this conflict is going to continue um, to be here for the near future. In that regard, is that one of the now major factors of hey, investors need to fly to to safety at this time? Is is that taking the top? level now that we're pretty much th through the the height of earnings seasons and people are realizing you know companies aren't beating by hundreds of millions of dollars well some are but not all are like they used to be now is that going to the bottom of the list and is the war becoming the the top watched item now do you know daniel we were at a very interesting point at this stage markets generally speaking have pretty much recovered their poise since the conflict was first uh uh, announced, if you like, at the end of February, um, and they've admittedly there's there's been some sort of flatlining, uh, but the initial shock reaction to the conflict so far is contained. And of course, the the question further out is not only will uh, Western sanctions on Russia um, remain in place after the conflict has ended, but how much damage has been done to Russia's reputation? Because quite apart from the problems it's causing itself economically, um, as we just mentioned, there are several hoops to jump through in terms of replacing um, the reliance on Russia from various European nations. And with that in mind, each day when we hear, um, hopefully, news of some sort of concessions coming along, none of those have actually come into, into force at the moment. And when we, we have that level of uncertainty, just from a human perspective, let alone from an investment perspective, um, that adds to the general cocktail of concerns, which we're looking at on a global basis, be that uh, rising interest rates, uh, persistent inflation, or potentially some company misses. Richard, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. You have a great weekend, okay? Thanks for joining and us. Thank you, pleasure. All right, here we go. Over to Seeking Office, Kim Khan. For next week's Catalyst Watch. Hey Daniel, yeah, um, we've had, as you said, peak earnings season this, you know, peak earnings week this past week, but um, still a very busy calendar. We've got next week. We we're just talking about companies with pricing power. If you're looking to that, you want to check out Starbucks earnings. You're going to want to check out Anheuser Busch InBev. Uh, if you're interested in how things are going in the supply chain, um, you're you're going to want to see AMD's numbers coming out. But it's it's really also going to be a huge macro week, and the the headline is the uh, FOMC decision. Um, and, you know, as we've we've heard just earlier about the concerns of contraction going on with first quarter, people are saying, is that going to change the Fed's mind? If you look at the markets, no way. So it's more than a ninety percent chance of a fifty basis point hike still, and then still um, over an eighty percent chance of seventy five basis points in June. 
Um, we've got non-farm payrolls coming out as well. Um, that's going to be a, a big one for the strength and uh, tightness of the labor market. Um, the consensus now is for about uh, 400,000 jobs to be added and the jobless rates remain the same. I'd say that's going to shift a bit going into, into the numbers, though. And then also Friday, once they're you know released from their blackout period, you'll have a host of Fed speakers talking about the Fed decision. So pretty busy time. So all eyes are on the Fed. Right. I, that's kind of what it feels like. It's been that way for months now. I mean, are, are we going to see, is it going to be 50? What, what's your take? Is it going to be 50? Is it going to be 75? Or is it going to be a hundred? I think it's going to be 50. I think 75 would be too much of a shock for the markets right now. People have been reining in the expectations for the year, just um, kind of uh, based on the, the numbers they've been seeing. And um, you know, you've seen a kind of reversal in, in bond yields and that's given, you know, fed a little more leeway. So I don't, I don't, I don't think you're going to see a 75 out of the blue. I think they have telegraphed it better. Yeah. It feels like it's a, you know, it's a game of communication, cat and mouse. Um, they seem to do a pretty good job. At least Powell does. Powell tells you what he's going to do well in advance and, and usually follows up with it. Yeah. I mean, and usually at his press conference, so everybody watching that. Yeah. Now, what's your take on the, uh, the Twitter ordeal? Obviously we talked about it last week, Twitter, Elon enter into an agreement. Is it going to close? What's your take? Um, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, you do some wonder about the, the wisdom of a company adopting a poison pill and then just conceding a couple of days later. But, you know, I think there's a, a, the, there's a suspicion growing that it won't go through. And I think one, the main reason is because the stock price is right now more than 10% below um, Elon Musk's offer. That's pretty big arb range for where it is, especially when he's like, you know, basically said he's got the, the funding for it. So I think there's two main worries on that front. First, that he'll have to sell Tesla stock. That'll cause a cascade of Tesla selling and it'll just be too much for, for on, a, on a balance sheet you know, perspective or in his personal bank account perspective to take and he'll, he'll back out. I think another big problem though is China. And that is if you're gonna be a free speech absolutist and you're gonna to have to deal with China and China has been you know, cracking down on social media companies, but these other companies didn't have, you know, something that China could leverage, which is Tesla's business with, um, you know, the factories there and the demand for Tesla automobiles. So, if China, you know, China says, okay, take down these tweets. We don't like them, or we'll like, you know, inspect your factories for two months. What happens then? It's a, it's a bit of a changing landscape there. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, Kim, let's go ahead and leave it there. You have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Daniel. And that wraps it up for this week's episode of The Weekend Bite. Stay safe out there and have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.